everyone, and welcome to Nella's Ten Trunk Podcast. You might hear the water flowing past. That's the Nile. I'm excited to be recording this while I'm en route from Luxor to Aswan on the Nile River in Egypt. I've now been to Egypt several times, and as Tin Trunk's newest destination, I'm excited to be here again and to have clients coming through too. When I went to Sudan in 2018, I was with a group of travel people, all of whom had been to Egypt and who kept saying to me, Nella, if you are loving this in Sudan, you have got to see Egypt. Sudan still holds its own in the world of ancient cultures, architecture, and artifacts, lots of them lying around undisturbed for centuries. And if there is an explorer archaeologist in you, you'll love the off-the-beaten-path, climbing down a rickety old ladder into an unlit tomb at the bottom of a sacred mountain that looks like a pyramid, feeling like you just might be one of the first. But Egypt? Good grief. Egypt blows the mind. As one of our sons said halfway along our family trip, I get it now. Greece and Rome didn't invent anything. He was kidding, sort of. Visiting Egypt is not a novel notion. Tourists have been doing it since the 1700s, especially the French and the English, and they have the museums full of Egyptian treasures to prove it. One of the most important and challenging things about Egypt is getting your head around the time. In Greece, the Parthenon was built between 447 and 432 BC, or before Common Era. In Rome, the Colosseum takes you back to 70 AD, or Common Era. In Cairo, the Pyramids of Giza date back to 2600 BC. So when the Colosseum was built, the pyramids were already 2,670 years old. One of the great Egyptian pharaohs or kings, Ramses II, built his tomb, or had it built, I should say, in about 1255 BC. That means when he stood and looked at the pyramids of Giza, they were already over a thousand years old. If getting your head around these long-ago dates and relationships is making you spin, welcome to Egypt. What? How long ago? Wait. Luckily, you have an expert Egyptologist with you throughout who is used to this baffled state, and we are not even talking about how they did all of this engineering of the ancient things. That boggles the mind even more. For example, we have just left a quarry along the river from which the sandstone was harvested for the major temples in the country, Karnak and Luxor, Philae and Abu Simbel. As we stood amongst these cliffs of sheer rock, we learned how they quarried these enormous stones and how they quarried the obelisks further south at Aswan out of the much harder granite in a single piece. And that is just one of the great stops we're making along the way. Indeed, a journey on the Nile while you visit Egypt is a must. As much as I love visiting and revisiting the museums, temples, and tombs, and unpeeling the layers of knowledge each time I do, being on the river wins for me. Especially as each day brings a temple or tomb or quarry or fishing village to explore, as well as some downtime to let it all soak in. You're probably going from Luxor to Aswan, and that means you're motoring or sailing or being tugged, as the case may be, 
up the river to the south from what they call Lower Egypt into what is known as Upper Egypt. Even that is confusing. This is because the Nile is the only major river in the world that flows from south to north, from Lake Victoria to the Mediterranean, over some 4,000 miles. There are actually two Niles, the blue and the white, and they converge at Khartoum in Sudan and flow as one into Egypt. I like telling people that where I live in Kenya, on Iburu, near the slopes of Mao Escarpment, is the source of the Mara River. The Mara River flows into Lake Victoria and from there into the Nile. So rain on my house, way down on the equator, is making it to the Med. And the river is everything to the history of this land, as is the desert climate, which preserves with its natural desiccation. From as far back as one goes to today, agriculture flourishes along the green belt of the Nile, a narrow strip bordered by desert sands. The Nile Valley is 930 miles, 1,500 kilometers, and varies in width from 2 to 10 miles or 3 to 16 kilometers, stretching the length of Egypt from north to south and occupying a depression around the Nile River. It occupies 3% of Egypt's land, but is home to 96% sorry, 96 of its people. In past times, taxes were handed to the people based on the annual floods of the river. Lots of water, easy to get around, prosperity, more taxes. Not so much water, harder to get around, hard to farm, country in distress, more taxes. This is especially true where there are cataracts, shallow areas with rapids along the river that were hard to navigate for trade boats if the water was too high or too low. The Nile enters the Med at Alexandria. As I do this podcast, I've not yet visited Alexandria, and it is firmly on my list, as is the oasis of Siwa, where Alexander the Great went to consult the oracle of Amun and was declared the son of Zeus Amun, a clever conflation of the main deities of both Greece and Egypt. So let's begin there, or we risk meandering like a winding river through an ancient land. Sifting through the greatness in Egypt, what's the story? First of all, this is a trip for all. Children from the age of seven and up will love it, and your guides will always modify to make sure all interests are covered. They're very good, too, at noticing your eyes glaze over from too much information. Choose your time carefully. You're predominantly looking at two main factors, weather and people. The former follows a general northern hemisphere seasonality, but with more extremes of hot and cold due to the desert climate and pretty much zero rain, two inches a year on average, with crystal clear blue skies pretty much every day. The latter, the clouds, are not as big of an issue as they once were before the Arab Spring and the COVID, but they're on the rise again. Thankfully, for Egypt and the livelihoods of her people and preservation of her treasures, and perhaps not so thankfully for those who do not enjoy lining up to get into a museum. So planning with those two things in mind makes sense. If dry desert heat doesn't bother you, then the summer months between June and September may work. The pros are fewer visitors and longer days. You visit things early in the morning and later in the afternoon, and you get to be in the temples 
almost by yourself. But you're hot. Think dry, hair dryer in the face kind of heat. But that does not make you sweaty due to the low humidity in the desert. No wonder the mummies are intact thousands of years later, right? So if dry temps in the hundreds Fahrenheit or 40s Celsius don't sound fun or even remotely doable to your internal thermostat, then November through March is super. I love November because I don't like being cold and I find January quite cold, especially now in the evenings while on the river. How much time do you need in Egypt? If you plan to journey along the path of antiquities, then you will likely visit Cairo, Luxor, and Aswan plus the river trip. You can add Alexandria, an oasis, or some beach time on the Red Sea to that if you like. Even if you spend two or three nights in each place, you'll feel like you are stuffing information into your already stuffed head, and so I highly recommend some time to let it all soak in and taking any opportunity to slow down along the way. So two to three weeks is ideal. Each time I go, I tend to wish I was going a bit slower. In contrast to a safari where you need a minimum of three, ideally four, in each location, Egypt lends itself to a faster pace, so two nights does work, as long as you have four or five nights on the Nile to interrupt the museum, tomb, temple frenzy with some peaceful, watery days. What are the musts? Time on the Nile, for sure, and we fine-tune this as per your preferences, but the Dahabiya is my preferred method. It has five or six rooms only, and so quite perfect for a private charter with just your group of friends or family. I'm here now, in fact, with clients who are a group of friends. You also have the option to take a room on a larger boat with about 20 rooms, so still in line with the boutique nature of Tin Trunk, and with a bit more luxury, a spa, a gym, and that kind of thing. Most important is to experience the Nile, see the amazing temples and tombs along the way, and get a feel for modern local life, which is actually a step back in time. As farmers maintain canals from the river to their fields with a national rotation system of who gets to pump water when based on the kinds of crops they're growing. Cairo is also a must-see, and this city can live up to as much time as you want to give her. There is ancient Cairo, Coptic Cairo, Islamic Cairo, trendy Cairo, and tranquil Cairo. It's known as the city that never sleeps, and my usual arrival from Kenya at 1.20 a.m. attests to that. Already there are two must-see museums, the old one in Tahir Square, called the Warehouse Museum by one of my Egyptologist guides, due to how much is crammed into it, with loads more still in the basement and the new National Museum of Egyptian Civilization, or NIMEC, where they have taken the mummies. If the NIMEC is a preview of what the gem, or Grand Egyptian Museum, will be like when it finally opens, then a visit or a return to Cairo just to see that will make sense, for the NIMEC is stunning, airy, uncramped, and beautifully curated. And of course there is Giza and her three massive pyramids. But don't miss seeing the red or the bent pyramids of Dashur or the step pyramid complex at Saqqara. I confess that I like both of those more than the Giza ones. Take advantage of going inside a pyramid at Dashur, where you may even find yourself alone at the center of all that stone. So powerful, without the distractions of people, 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 
like you will have if you enter a Giza pyramid. I call Luxor the Florence of Egypt. The whole place is an open-air museum, and if I had to choose a favorite temple, well, Karnak, uh, Abu Simbel, Komombo, never mind. But I love Luxor, and despite having to wake up at the crack of dawn, I also love hot air ballooning over the area. It's incredibly cool to look down on the temples and tombs of the Valley of the Queens. In both the Valley of the Kings and Queens, they pick and choose which tombs you can enter. I highly recommend purchasing the special tickets for the ones not included in your general visit. And if you do, you'll see what I mean. And it's not just about the age of these tombs or how in the world they made them, or that they were established by the new kingdom pharaohs who were tired of treasures meant to secure their wonderful lives next time being looted out of pyramids. For pyramids are rather obvious. It's also, and mostly for me, about the art. For although themes are repeated, like I'm the greatest and better than all who preceded me and I will have just the best life next time, the difference of the artistic nuances, the use of color, and the fact that most of this is restored without being repainted is what lingers in the mind after you descend into these beautiful tombs. When you reach Aswan after the boat trip, you'll be ready to relax. It's a beautiful place with the Nile's cataract, big boulders of granite and diorite that made it very tricky to navigate when navigating was the lifeblood of trade between Egypt and Nubia, as well as within Egypt herself. The main attractions from Aswan are the Philae Temple, dedicated to Isis, she was a very cool goddess, and the massive Abu Simbel, built for Ramses II and his wife Nefertari. Both are incredible and both have had to be rebuilt after the modern and truly ginormous Aswan Dam threatened to submerge them. Being in Abu Simbel is, so far, my favorite vibe in Egypt. There is something joyous and fun about this place, and I have been known to leap around in there a bit. So here I sit, on the Nile, heading to Aswan, where we will arrive a day or two from now. We will see Abu Simbel, and we will then head to Cairo for part two, pyramids, at Giza, Dashur, and Saqqara. We get to visit some recent discoveries at Saqqara, which I'm excited about. And then we drive out into the Sahara to Fayum, not a true oasis, as not a spring coming up from the ground, but rather a series of ancient canals with over 200 ancient water wheels to irrigate the land. There's a modern art scene that has revived ancient methods of pottery making, and there's a valley of whale skeletons from when the area was under the sea. And, well, we are insured to see, as Howard Carter stated when he first peeked into the tomb of King Tutankhamun in 1922. Wonderful things. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next one when I'm going to put up the interview I did with one of my Egyptologists. I think you'll find that one really exciting. This is Nella Nancini Hutchings, and thanks to everyone for joining my Tin Trunk podcast. Until next time, wishing you joyful adventures.